trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Yep, I'm always walking that razor's edge of doing what I can to keep you informed without terrifying you. Sometimes the news is just that way. And we've had a pretty good run of bad news here of late, so I'm not going to pile on here, but I do have some thought-provoking commentary to share with you today. By the way, I have some great sponsors who make this program possible. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, as well as Borelli.com, and TMCPNation.com. That's the Modern Conservative Podcast, my friend John Harvey. And uh, if, you, if you're the kind of person who likes to uh, wear your love of freedom on your sleeve, like a good t-shirt or a hat, something like that, I think you should check out his website. I think you'll find something that would be very worth your while and uh, would help you convey that message in a, in a manner that uh, befits your personality. Again, it's tcmpnation.com. There's a link in my show notes, which you can access at thebrianhideshow.com. So I thought I would start today with uh, what, what I perceive may be the greatest danger as well as opportunity of our current monetary crisis. And that is that it will be used, this crisis will be used to implement some kind of government-controlled digital currency, a central bank digital currency. I know it sounds like, are you going to get all biblical? Are you going to talk about this being the mark of the beast from Revelations? I don't know if it is or not. I really don't. But if it's not, it could be missing a good opportunity because that, that seems to be the direction things are going. I thought I would turn to James Howard Kunstler just to, to kind of get a feel for what exactly is going on with our money troubles. And that's the title of his latest uh, essay on Lou Rockwell. He starts with a quote from a, quote from a Substack account called Eugippius. As for the evil, it lurks, it lurks rather in the interstices of our bureaucratic institutions, which, as they have grown in size and complexity since the 19th century, behave in ways that are increasingly impossible to understand and contrary to human flourishing. Now, James Howard Kunstler says, money is all theoretical until it's not. Paper money is bad enough, as France learned under the tutelage of the rascal John Law in the early 1700s. The nation was broke, exhausted by foolish wars, and heaped under unbearable debt. Monsieur Law, a Scottish genius wizard, the Jerry Lewis of political economy, landed in Paris, cast a spell on the Regent Duke Orleans, and set up a magic credit engine fueled by dreams of untold riches to come burgeoning out of the vast newfound lands called Louisiana up the Mississippi River, and modern finance was born. Now, the stock and money schemes known as the Mississippi bubble soon ruined France and put finance in such a bad odor that the word bank could not be used in polite society there for a century to come. Monetary inflation became a thing for the first time ever since, or since for the first time since the Roman days, rather. A much easier trick with printed paper banknotes than with silver coins. But the effect was the same. The evaporation of wealth, which is what money supposedly represents. At the height of the crisis, trading in gold was criminalized. Though that was so easily worked around due to the sheer custom and habit that the crown had to re-legalize it. 
The frenzy from start to finish lasted just a few years, but the nation was set on the path that it would eventually lead to revolution. Law ended his days dolefully running card games in Venice. Likewise, the creaking polity called the USA in our time spawned many new incarnations of John Law as it transitioned from being the arsenal of democracy, you know, making real things, to a land of make-believe where unicorns galloped over rainbows conjured by computer magic and utopian wishes of equity, diversity, and inclusion. He says the overhang of previously amassed wealth kept those dreams going long after we discontinued the rough and messy business of making stuff and thereby generating real wealth. But now a klaxon blares, signaling the end of dream time and the nation wakes up in a ramshackle house with the floor giving way under the bed. The rot was plain to see in the banking architecture built on U.S. Treasury paper. Bills, notes, bonds, as rising interest rates undercut the price of all the debt paper issued previously at lower rates. And this was the collateral that banks generally held the depositors' money in. So when it became necessary to declare a problem with the balance sheet and cash had to be raised to cover it, the Treasury paper could only be sold at a loss Liabilities exceeded assets, word got out, depositors rushed to secure the money in their accounts. That was all she wrote for Yon Bank, in this case, Silicon Valley Bank, the first to crumble. Now, since banks today exist in a vast matrix of interconnected obligations, in other words, promises to pay this and that, fear grows that the rot from one bank, such as SVB, will infect many other banks that are no longer able to keep their promises about paying this and that leading to a daisy chain of things not getting paid. For an economy, that's about the same as blood ceasing to circulate in a body. The practice in situations such as this, say 2008-2009, is for the governing authorities who supposedly rule over the banking world like gods to rush to rescue these outfits with liquidity, money, or representations of it as required to rebalance things or maybe provide the impression of rebalancing until something else can be figured out. The Jupiter and Minerva of American banking, Jay Powell and Janet Yellen, were faced with just that sort of call for divine intervention over the weekend, as fear seeped into every nook and crevice of the money world that wealth was flurrying away in the long-feared conflagration out of the dumpster that banking had become. Sunday morning, Ms. Yellen told CBS News, bailouts, no way. But by the afternoon, Mr. Powell cried, bailouts, way. And they had to get their story straight. They offered up a $25 billion bailout. Rather, they offered up $25 billion to bail out depositors for a smoldering system that will arguably require a trillion dollars or more of liquidity to quench the spreading fires. Now, Kunstler says one thing looks for sure. The interest rate hikes that Mr. Powell spoke of so confidently just days ago just got stashed into his folder labeled forget about it. So the campaign to control inflation must now yield to the urgent need to create a whole lot of money to spray over those fires. Now, you may have noticed that the value of your money has been slip sliding away the past year or so. Peanut butter at five bucks a jar and all. The situation at hand kind of guarantees that we'll be seeing a whole lot more of that. And then the gods of money will have lost control of the interest rate console altogether. No more tweaking the broken knobs. More inflation will prompt U.S. Treasury paper holders to dump what they can while there's still some value to retrieve. But the U.S. has to issue more debt for all the bailouts and the theoretical buyers of new debt will perforce bid up the rates to keep up with inflation. And yet the U.S. can't possibly bear the burden of paying higher interest rates on its debt. 
Looks like the business model for running the USA is breaking down before our eyes. Now, luckily, he says Captain Joe Biden is at the helm of this steaming garbage barge, his conference room full of geniuses, ready with the solution to our predicament. The long-mythologized central bank digital currency. A dream come true for would-be tyrants. The Godzilla of unicorns whinnying atop the biggest rainbow of all. The promise of endless magic money for everybody forever. All you have to do to get it is surrender your decision-making power over your life. The government will amalgamate your few remaining assets in a CBDC account, tell you exactly what to spend it on, and shut off your little card if you show any contrary impulses. And he says, well, they can try it. I doubt it will work. Instead, the government will melt down in its own rancid puddle of insolvency. The mega grift will grind to an end, and it will be everyone for his, her, they, self, in the broke-down palace of chaos for a while, until things emergently reconstruct. But he says, I get a little ahead of myself. It's not even 10 o'clock on a Monday morning. Oh, and then there's Ukraine. <laughs> this is why I like James Howard Kunstler. He gets right to the point. And I do believe the biggest concern for the current monetary crisis that's going on has everything to do with putting a CBDC into place. Now, maybe I'm being paranoid. I mean, look, I would love I would love to be just dead wrong on this one. And there's every possibility that I might be. But it just seems like it's too good of a thing to pass up. I can't see the powers that be not wanting to take advantage of this and, and not wanting to, to implement, you know, a system that could really give them ironclad control over pretty much every aspect of our lives. That's the downside of digital money. Yes, it's convenient. Yes, I know it's, it's safe. Nobody can mug you. Nobody can take it from you. has to be biologically, you know, like a, some kind of a biological marker in order to use it, a thumbprint, an eye scan, whatever. But is it worth it? When your identity becomes a government-sponsored privilege or a government-granted privilege, you can quickly become an unperson simply through having, you know, bad attitudes improper opinions and I have a pretty pretty good suspicion that's that's a list that I would definitely be on so I'm not trying to make the case that I'd like to live my life a little more easier but I'm not exactly ready to go back to living like a caveman either so it sounds like we've got some decisions to make not just me but everybody I hope we make the right ones this is the Brian Hyde show This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, just so this doesn't get lost in the shuffle. Yes, some of the things I share with you are definitely assessing the situation and saying, okay, this is, uh, this is what it looks like. This is, this is how bad it actually is, or this is what is causing concern. Here's some things you should be aware of. I want you to understand, though, at the basis of everything that I share, The goal that I have is not to leave you feeling scared or otherwise like, well, I know everything that's going on, but now I've wet myself. You know, what a what a terrible position to be in. No, I want to try to convince you that whatever the challenges are that we face, the solution that makes the most sense 
And this is regardless of your politics, regardless of your religion, regardless of pretty much any facet of life that you can name. If you want to be part of the solution, you've got to be willing to focus on becoming the best version of yourself, becoming a truly great individual. Now, that's going to look a little different for everybody, okay? It's not going to, we're all, not all going to be clones or anything like that. But getting your stuff together, knowing who you are, knowing what you stand for, will do more to help, you know, right the, the ship of state, so to speak, than, uh, than however many political rallies you can think of, or electing the right person, or stumping for that person. You becoming an awesome person will improve the world right where you are standing, undeniably. And it's proof to other people around you that it can be done. So you draw others along with the power of your example. Is it, a, uh, is it an easy thing to do? No, of course not. But the confidence that you gain by doing truly difficult things, including becoming a truly awesome individual, an authentic character, if you will, well worth it. And somewhere along the way, you may just discover that you've got some kind of mission or some kind of purpose that you need to be living up to. Well, I'm suggesting find out what that is. And and go fulfill the reason for which you were born. So, with that in mind, let's, uh, let's switch back to uh, politicians suggesting that taxpayer-funded assistance being offered to failing banks. Somehow, that's really not a bailout. Now, Thomas L. Knapp absolutely disagrees with that uh, that claim. In fact, he makes the case, yes, it is a taxpayer bailout, bailout. He says, U.S. President Joe Biden stresses that Silicon Valley Bank is not getting a bailout. That was reported in The Hill on March 13th. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers, the president said of the federal government's decision to cover depositor losses in excess of $250,000. Instead, the money will come from the ye- from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. But Thomas Knapp points out, Biden's explanation doesn't support Biden's claim. The bank's customers, and by extension the bank itself, are definitely getting a bailout, and here's why. The FDIC is, as its name implies, an insurance proposition. The premiums banks pay are based on the amounts they have in deposits and an FDIC opinion of how risky the bank's practices are. So Thomas Knapp says, now let us turn our attention to a great film about the last big U.S. financial collapse, The Big Short. By way of explaining his pitch for betting that collapse was coming, Jared Vennett, a fictional character based on a real person, tells some investors, I'm standing in front of a burning house and I'm offering you fire insurance on it. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank and other likely banks to follow, the FDIC is standing in front of the burning multi-million dollar houses insured for $250,000 and offering to pay the full value of the houses instead of the amount insured. So who's covering the difference? Well, for the moment, all of the banks which haven't collapsed yet, which means the customers of all the banks which haven't collapsed yet. It's those customers who actually pay those FDIC premiums. Banks don't turn profits by eating their costs of doing business. Depositors earn a little less interest or pay slightly higher fees or the bank charges borrowers higher interest rates and fees. These customers are presumably taxpayers, which means that, yes, Taxpayers are indirectly bearing the costs of the bailout, 
And if, no, let's be honest, when banks, more banks start going under because they put money into investments that tanked their liquidity, that is their ability to cover potential surges in depositor withdrawals, and the FDIC runs out of money to cover this new any amount instead of just what was actually insured policy, the taxpayer funding will go from indirect to direct. Now, he says to add insult to injury, the depositors getting bailed out could have avoided the whole situation by spreading their deposits across different banks with no more than $250,000 at each bank. Why should their bad judgment and their bankers' bad judgment be expensed to you? Well, the answer is it shouldn't. But as we saw with the 2007-2008 collapse, American finance is a house of cards because it can be. Privatize the profits, socialize the losses. Government policy ensures that the costs of poor decision-making making rather, aren't borne by the poor decision-makers. Beautifully stated. And that's, that's the part that gives me grief about this is why are, why are we seeing you know, people avoid the consequences of their bad decisions? I understand. It sucks. Look, I've lost $100,000 on a bad investment decision before. It was, a, it was a painful experience. But I had to bear those costs myself. And I think that uh, there were some great lessons involved in that. Trust me, the kind of lessons that you don't make the same mistake twice. So let others uh, do that as well and stop putting it on the taxpayers, either directly or indirectly. In fact, I want to segue to an article here from uh, Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation. It's, just, it's simply titled, <clears throat> Why Not Let Banks Fail? He says, imagine that for the last 100 years, the federal government's policy was to bail out every business that was in danger of going under. The policy would consist of shoveling large amounts of subsidies into the business in order to help it remain in business. However, if the business failed anyway... The federal government would pay a large sum of money to the owners of the business as well as to the business's employees to enable them to transition to other lines of work. Now, for a true blue socialist, that would sound like a tremendously fine idea. It would conjure up images of Medicare for All, the socialist health care system by which the federal government would provide or guarantee health care services for everyone for free. In actuality, however, it would be an enormously bad idea which I think everyone except true blue socialists would instinctively realize. After all, where would the federal government get all that money to cover all the businesses that fail on a regular basis? Yep, taxation. The feds would have to be taxing the American people big time to keep up with providing subsidies to all those failing businesses. It wouldn't be long before Americans found themselves paying income taxes totaling maybe 90% or more of their incomes to provide all the money to fund this giant socialist scheme. Moreover, he says, all that free money would encourage all sorts of inefficient businesses. Everyone would be opening up businesses knowing that if they failed, the government would be there to bail them out. Obviously, that would only exacerbate the taxation problem. Well, Jacob Hornberger says the United States now has an economic system in which there is massive governmental intervention, both with respect to large welfare state programs like Social Security and Medicare, as well as economic regulation. Nonetheless, there is still an instinctive commitment to the principles of a genuine free market economy, that is, one in which economic enterprise is free of government control and intervention. 
one in which people are free to keep everything they earn, do what they want with their own money, and freely enter into economic transactions with others. That was America's founding economic system. And Jacob Hornberger says everyone knows that in a free market, there are no guarantees of success. Life entails risk. Some people take the road the, the road of high risk. Others try to play it perfectly safe. Most people live their lives somewhere in between. I got to tap the brakes here because I'm coming up on a commercial break as well. But I'm going to come back to Jacob Hornberger's uh, commentary. Why not let the banks fail? I know if you work in a bank or someone you love works in a bank, you're like, hey, Brian, I don't know if I, if I can go for that. But the idea that people should be able to own their own risk, not push it off onto others. I think that encourages uh, wiser behavior. Why wouldn't it? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back Sharing this commentary from Jacob Hornberger from the Freedom, I'm sorry, the Future of Freedom Foundation. And Jacob has uh, has long ago won my trust as being a very credible, principled defender of freedom and especially, you know, limited government. And I think he's right about uh, just why not let the banks fail if they are engaging in bad business practices, which clearly, at least uh, the two banks that uh, that failed over the weekend, were engaged in in questionable business practices or bad decisions, they need to own it. His point about if if you just if you just bail out everybody, if everybody knows, well, nobody is going to be able to fail, then uh, they're going to be reckless because it's not really their own risk to assume. It's not their own money that's that's at risk. He says people invest money in the stock market. When they do so, they're buying stock in a particular company. They know the value of that stock can go up and it can go down. They also know that the company could even go under, which could entail a total loss of their investment. When that happens, the government doesn't bail out the investor, even if the investor has lost his entire life savings. Moreover, no one cries out for the government to do so. It has become part of our economic culture that people invest their money at their own risk. If people don't want to risk losing their money in the stock market, well, then they should stay out of the stock market. Now, obviously, this no bailout policy should cause people to be cautious about which companies to invest in. Since the government isn't going to bail out investors, it behooves people to do research on companies to, or to rely on trusted financial advisors who've done their homework on companies. This leads to a more enlightened citizenry and more efficient businesses. So Jacob Hornberger's question here is, why not treat banks the same way? If people put their money in a bank that fails, why should they be treated any differently from people who invest their money in a company that fails? If they choose the wrong bank, why should taxpayers be forced to cover their bad or wrong decision? Why not simply let the bank go under, just as we let companies go under? Now, here's where he's coming from. In a genuine free market, people would be much more careful about which banks to put their money into. Like with the purchase of stocks, they would be more likely to do research on banks or rely on trusted financial advisors who do that for a living. And people who wish to take bigger risks for a higher return would select banks that were riskier than others. 
People who wish to play it safe would select more secure banks with a lower return. Under the bank system in which we live today, the government insures deposits in excess of $250,000. Yet the government doesn't always follow this policy. As we see with the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, the government sometimes covers all the deposits, including those that exceed $250,000, in the event of a bank failure. Moreover, oftentimes the failed bank is simply absorbed into the banking system rather than simply permitted to go out of existence. Now, obviously this system doesn't encourage due diligence on the part of investors or depositors, rather. Why should anyone research the financial condition of a bank when the government is going to cover deposits if the bank goes under? Why should anyone worry about buying stock in a bank if the government is going to bail out the bank if it fails? You see where he's coming from? Over time, the entire banking system inevitably becomes weaker and more unstable. At first, individual banks fail, which the government is able to cover. However, ultimately, this type of system inevitably leads in the direction of an industry-wide banking collapse, one that the government lacks the money to cover unless it taxes the citizenry an enormously large percentage of their income. That's in fact why the government continues raising the amount of its deposit insurance and why it continues to bail out depositors and banks that fail. The government, wa the government wants to assure depositors everything's okay with its socialist banking system when in fact everything is not okay with its socialist banking system. One of the biggest mistakes America has ever made was to socialize the banking system. Jacob Hornberger says we should get government out of the banking business and restore our heritage of free markets to this sector of the economy. Separating banking and the state is the key to a strong and viable banking system. I know not everybody's ready for that message, but I still think he's, he's right on the money. And I think this is, this is something that at some point we're going to have to embrace. A free market better banks, less central control. Are we going to get there before we see some really hard times? I don't know. Honestly, I believe that it may take the incentive of hard times to get people to to step out of the step out of the paradigm that they're used to and and to consider something different, something sound. I'm actually very intrigued and I actually have a number of friends, you know, who we're all trying to apply brain power. What can we do? Let's just say that uh, this becomes an excuse to implement some kind of a central bank digital currency. That sounds like a really good way to offer complete control over your life via your income. And it sounds like something that uh, at some point we're going to either have to choose to opt in or opt out. It's, it's a binary decision, hard as that may be. And I know a lot of people myself included, are like, well, how can I keep one foot in the canoe and the other foot over here on the dock as they're going in different directions? The point is you can't. You can't do it indefinitely. So I'm not saying this lightly. We have some tough decisions to make. And part of it may be that, uh, you know, you decide it's not worth it for me to be in and part of that system. And I think by making that choice, you're going to be necessarily choosing a lower standard of living or a lower lifestyle than what you may have been used to. And, and for some people, that's just intolerable. Well, I need, uh, I need this kind of lifestyle. I need this kind of a car and this much square footage in my house and my clothes have to be this nice and I have to be able to dine out this many days a week. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it would look like to, to opt out of such a system, but 
Uh, look at somebody who tries to, to get by today without a social security card or, you know, without, without a state granted, uh, you know, ID like a driver's license. It's pretty tough to open a bank account without either one of those things. Pretty tough to get employment without either one of those things. And yet there's, there's a real legit principle at stake here. If you don't want to hand over, you know, what you consider undue control to government via the banking cartel, yeah, you got some choices to make. And, and I guess my point is just simply this. That's the kind of choice you got to make beforehand. If you wait until it's knocking on your door, you've waited too long, and more than likely you're going to go along to get along just like everybody else. In fact, you'll find comfort when you see, well, look, you know, other people are doing this too, and I guess, yeah, it sucks, but, you know, what are you going to do? I really think the the weight of the decision that is coming before us is going to be much more important, and, and maybe it is. You know, maybe it's the mark of the beast. But I know people, personally, who have already made the decision, whatever it is, mark of the beast or not, I'm not going to be participating in it simply because I will not give up what remains of my own autonomy and my own personal liberties. And if that means that things get exceedingly uncomfortable, then so be it. So I don't know how it works. I guess we're going to find out. This is going to be one of the tough things that we have to sort out. But it's best to be thinking about it now and, and not just putting it off. All right, let me shift gears here. A couple of things I'd want to cover in, in what remains of this segment and in the final segment. Um, I, I talk a fair amount about the uh, January 6th committee and about the events and the spin, the narrative and so forth. And, and I'm ready to, to rip the Band-Aid off and just, just be kind of bold about this. The, the actions of the January 6th Select Committee are treasonous. They are really legit treasonous in putting people in jail for parading or for, you know, uh, for trespassing when, when in fact many just were, were being guided through the Capitol by police officers. Now, look, you can say, well, but there was a disturbance earlier. Perhaps. But if these people weren't violent, they do not deserve to be punished. And I think they have been extremely unfairly maligned and, and charged or held, you know, without, uh, without bail. And now we have, to top off, you know, the, the undoing of the narrative, a spill of FBI secrets. Julie Kelly's got an excellent article from AmericanGreatness.com. Americans will hold accountable those responsible for the accelerating degradation of the U.S. justice system as the government's J-6 narrative collapses and their wrongdoing becomes apparent. And in particular, what she's talking about here is confronted with messages the Justice Department attempted to conceal Nicole Miller, who's an FBI agent, one of the lead FBI investigators assigned to the so-called Proud Boys case, was on the verge of admitting that the FBI monitored privileged communications between one defendant and his attorney in 2021. In fact, her words were, it appears so when she was asked by defense attorney Nicholas Smith on March 8th to confirm that she and another agent discussed the content of emails exchanged between Zachary Real, one of five Proud Boys currently on trial for seditious conspiracy, and his former lawyer. Wow, did they destroy some evidence too? I think they may have. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an article here from Julie Kelly, who has been one of the best and most reliable sources of information on the January 6th narrative and debunking the uh, so-called findings of the January 6th committee. I and, and I don't say this lightly. What what these folks have been doing and are doing is nothing short of treasonous. And it is coming out, and this is why they're panicking, and it's why they're so incensed. Nobody should be watching those videos, uh, you know, the, the security footage, because they could come to the wrong conclusion. In other words, your eyes may show you what we don't want you to see. And, of course, heading all this up, the Justice Department, the FBI, it is so corrupted and so politicized, I just, I don't know how anybody could have any faith in it whatsoever. So, in this case, Julie Kelly's talking about uh, uh, Agent uh, Nicole Miller from the FBI assigned to the Proud Boys case, and she was asked by one of the defense attorneys about whether or not she and another agent discussed the content of emails exchanged between Zachary Real, who's one of five Proud Boys currently on trial, and his former lawyer. They're tried with seditious conspiracy. Smith read aloud one of Miller's texts. I need to find other emails, but this one email definitely indicates that they want to go to trial. But don't freak out, Jason and Luke. Smith turned to Miller. Now, Jason, you understand to be referring to the prosecutor in this case, Jason McCullough, correct? But jurors never heard the answer. After prosecutors loudly objected, Judge Timothy Kelly abruptly dismissed the jury. He informed jurors that we, he wanted to press pause, as we sometimes do when an objection hits, and then reconvene on the morning of March 9th. But that didn't happen either. Instead, Kelly, outside the eyes and ears of the jury, held a hearing with both sides on March 9th to determine how to proceed after the, after the defense team uncovered messages indicating FBI agents doctored internal reports, destroyed evidence, and tipped off prosecutors about defense strategy on the government's highest-profile January 6th case. Hey, where have we seen that kind of stuff before? I'll give you a hint. It rhymes with uh, Cliven Bundy. Now, prior to her testimony, Miller had compiled a spreadsheet of so-called Jenks material that cataloged internal messages related to her work on the case. That spreadsheet contained 25 rows of messages, but roughly 12,000 rows were hidden behind a tab and found by the defense. One message referenced one message referenced editing a report on a confidential human source, commonly known as an informant. You need to go into that report you just put out and edit the out that I was present, one agent texted Miller. She complied. Another agent told Miller an FBI supervisor instructed the unidentified agent to destroy 338 items of evidence, to which Miller reacted, OMG, insane. In perhaps the most shocking revelations, Miller and another agent discussed emails between Real, who's been imprisoned under pretrial detention orders since March of 2021, and his then-attorney, Jonathan Mosley. Found an email thread with Rail and his attorney, Mosley. The attorney raised some interesting points. Hopefully all related to him pleading out, Miller replied. Another defense attorney later noted that there appears to be missing FBI messages in the same exchange. Now, rather than express outrage at the fact that the FBI was spying on what is commonly considered privileged communications protected by the Constitution, Judge Kelly instead gave prosecutors time to concoct a face-saving strategy, and that they did. 
It appears that the Jenks production to defense counsel may involve a spill of classified information. U.S. Assistant Attorney Jocelyn, or Joylin uh, Ballantyne told Judge Kelly she added that the government needed to claw back the entire spreadsheet to review all the messages for allegedly classified material. We would ask them to return to us and confirm that they have deleted all copies of that spreadsheet from any electronic device or hard drive that they have, and then we would reproduce it to them, Ballantyne said. She further claimed that one agent in communications with Miller works on a squad that does covert activity that is classified. Ballantyne claimed the 338 items of destroyed evidence might impact a classified equity, whatever that means. Now, naturally, defense attorneys immediately objected to the government's demand that incriminating materials be returned to the original source and without any oversight or accountability, unilaterally decide which messages were classified and which not, which were not. Everything has been a secret order where we can't share any information. Sabino Jaguari, the lawyer representing Enrique Terrio, complained to Kelly. Everything has been done undercover. And now they come in here, they use this word classified to try and delay the case. I think we should continue. I think Mr. Smith's gotcha moment yesterday was ruined, and he had every right to get that agent and destroy her on cross, and all of a sudden, the trial was stopped. Now, Kelly, a longtime Justice Department employee who worked for years at the U.S. Attorney's D.C. office, the same office prosecuting every January 6th case, was unpersuaded by the defense argument and the totality of the evidence before him. I think it makes sense for me to order the defense to do what the government asked, Kelly concluded. The spreadsheet, which Ballantyne later in the hearing described as a classified document, could not be reviewed, copied, or shared until further notice. A flurry of motions followed. Defense attorneys filed motions to dismiss the case based on Sixth Amendment violations. The Justice Department, Department rather informed the court on March 12th that 80 rows in the original spreadsheet had been removed after prosecutors determined the messages were either classified or sensitive. And the reference to a doctored FBI report? The government claimed the agent requesting the edit simply wanted to be removed from an email chain because he had been promoted and was no longer handling the informant. The exchange concerns a routine clerical matter and does not suggest any wrongdoing on the part of the FBI generally or Agent Miller personally, prosecutors wrote. Sure, says Julie Kelly. Oh, and the 338 items of destroyed evidence, prosecutors insisted, without providing a scintilla of proof, that the message referred to the routine disposal of evidence in a 20-year-old case that had been closed. Always indignant, the Justice Department condemned the potential for confusion and unfair prejudice here is obvious, given the inflammatory use defense counsel have already made of the destroy evidence remark. But Julie Kelly points out the government's explanation as to why FBI agents were spying on email correspondence between a defendant and his attorney, and then apparently sharing that intelligence with prosecutors handling the case, that should alarm all Americans. Julie Kelly says, according to the Justice Department, individuals incarcerated at federal prisons, including defendants not convicted of any crime, as is the case with the Proud Boys, including real, now on trial are not entitled to protected communications with their lawyers. All emails and phone calls, the government explained, are conducted on a computer system operated by the Justice Department. Those in custody must agree to terms of use, including an acknowledgement that attorney-client discussions would be monitored. Real waived any privilege by knowingly using his Federal Detention Center Philadelphia's monitored email system to communicate with his attorney. Good heavens. 
Prosecutors demanded that cross-examination of Agent, Agent Miller, which Kelly interrupted right before the line of questioning got juicy, be limited to video, photographic, and message evidence from January 6, 2021, from midnight to shortly before 5 p.m. Translation, anything Miller discussed after January 6th should be off the table. As expected, Kelly folded to nearly every government demand. He accepted at face value the explanation that the destroyed evidence pertained to an old criminal case and was not relevant to the Proud Boys trial. He also refused to take up arguments about violations of the defendant's Sixth Amendment rights, declaring those discussions were not within the jury's purview. And Kelly strictly limited cross-examination about the edited report on the informant. If the government's version of what happened related to the report is true, Kelly sniffed, the defense objections are much ado about nothing. Now, Julie Kelly says what Judge Kelly must not realize is that the public does not view the dirty secrets accidentally spilled by an untrustworthy FBI and Justice Department as nothing. Kelly and the Justice Department can waive off due process rights, transparency, and the basic tenets of a fair trial. But as the American people come to terms with the phony narrative of January 6th, they ultimately will hold shameless judges like Kelly and rogue federal officials like Ballantyne and Miller responsible for the accelerating degradation of the U.S. justice system. I mean, I look, I don't want to get too wrapped around the axle on political stuff. But that's infuriating. That That is just maddening to see how corrupted this judge and, and the prosecution is. And, and I don't know where this all ends. I suspect that, uh, you know, the, the, the press is trying to gaslight, you know, the Senator uh, Schumer, among others, they're trying to gaslight. Wow, you, you must look away. Look away, citizens. There's nothing to see here. But it's becoming pretty clear. And I think it was clear to anybody who was really paying attention from the beginning. We weren't getting the full story. And now that narrative of, oh, well, you know, Trump and his supporters tried to take over and and tried to, uh, you know, destroy our democracy. Nope. Nope. It looks to me like somebody got a false flag going and uh, really tried their best to pin it on about half of the American populace, at least the voting populace, to criminalize their support of, uh, you know, a, a popular president at that time. I don't know where this all ends, but uh, it's getting pretty spicy. So I guess whatever we do, let's proceed with caution. This is The Brian Hyde Show.